continue our walk through the book of Exodus. If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as family pastor. And um, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12 this morning. So if you have a copy of scripture, you can turn there with me. Uh, uh, everything that I'm about to say, uh, uh, hopefully my prayer is that it's rooted right and fleshes right out of, uh, of, the, of the text of scripture itself. But uh, as students of the words yourselves, I think it's the onus is on you to check everything that I say uh, with, with the Word of God itself as we go through. So have a copy of Scripture, if you have it on your phone or, or a hard copy, uh, as we go through Exodus chapter 12 and 13 this morning. Before we do that, before we work through Scripture, uh, let me pray for us in our time uh, in the Word. Father, we believe in uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so would your Spirit uh, accompany uh, my words and the words uh, of, your, uh, of your Scripture uh, to change us deep within, to change us at the core of who we, uh, we are, uh, that, we might, uh, that we might walk in a way that's worthy uh, of your gospel. So we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 12 starts off with uh, these words, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Just pause there for a second. If you uh, haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been watching the story of Israel, as uh, of really the story of God redeeming or rescuing Israel from the land of Egypt. So they've been in Egypt for 430 years as slaves. God has, at this point, uh, brought about 12, called Moses, called uh, Moses a deliverer and his brother uh, to be his mouthpiece. And he's uh, demonstrated nine plagues or nine blows against the, uh, the nation of Egypt uh, to, to begin the process of rescuing his people out of Egypt. So they're in the land of Egypt. And after the, uh, uh, after the ninth plague, the Lord said to the Moses, Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to, begin, is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Now, many of us have a few pivotal days in the story of our lives, events that have impacted us in significant and lasting ways, completely changing the trajectory of our lives. Maybe for you, it was the day that you got married or the day that you had your first child, those kinds of things. They change our lives uh, indelibly. And maybe for you, it was, the, um, it was the day you got your current job. Or something that happened to you as, as, as a young child that set your life on, on, on a course or a trajectory that, uh, that's been unchanged. Maybe it was the day that you came to know the Lord for the first time. Maybe it was the day you moved to Alaska. Uh, there are certain events that shape us profoundly and that shape the direction of our lives in immense ways. And the events of Exodus chapter 12 and 13 are those kind of events. It's that kind of event, but for the entire nation of Israel as a whole. And we get, uh, we get this right from the start of the chapter in the verses that I just read. This is how he kicks off these, uh, these chapters. He, he said, God says, what I'm about to do is going to be huge, so drastic, so pivotal, that you as an entire civilization must recalibrate your whole calendar, your whole society's calendar around these events. So God does not bury the lead and he does not disappoint. God is about to rescue Israel from 430 years of misery and oppression. And this stunning act of rescue will mark the people of God, not just for the history of, the, of Israel, but for all of eternity. 
And as we cover this pivotal moment in Israel's history, we're going to see three major themes emerge from the story. And in each of these three, three themes, we're going to, we will see that the way God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt is a picture of the way God will one day rescue his people from slavery through Jesus. So the, the Exodus, the story of Exodus, the story of this final plague and the Passover that we're, that we're going to read is this picture of Jesus' work on the cross. And as we, work, as we walk through each of these themes, my prayer is that we would come face to face with the grandeur of God's rescue. Because here's the thing, often you and I suffer from a profoundly illogical and irrational condition in which we minimize the scope of God's saving work. In some sometimes subtle and undetected ways, the pivotal, drastic nature of God's rescue gets dulled and diminished in our hearts and in our souls. And we're, we'll, we'll see, as we go through the story of Exodus over the coming months, we'll see the same thing happen to Israel as, as Exodus continues. They, they will forget God's rescue. They're going to forget these, open, these, these, uh, these events of chapters 11 and 12. They will downplay these events. They will ignore the significance of these events. And with, when this happens, both to Israel and to ourselves, it leads to our misery. And so we're going to see three, three themes this morning. And our big idea through all of them is, is this. God decisively rescues through a substitute compelling us to rehearse the story. So all the events of Exodus chapter 12 and 13, God decisively rescues through a substitute, compelling us to rehearse the story. All right, so let's see. Our, our first point is, is that God's rescue secures adoption through substitution. God's rescue secures adoption through substitution. Let's read... Um, Let's read uh, the first few verses of Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 3. So after he tells him, change your New Year day, uh, he tells him, starting in verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, so this would have been sometime right around this time of year, April or early March, or late March, early April, uh, uh, um, uh, on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's family, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole family, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight, or it's really like sometime in the afternoon or uh, like second half of the day. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel or like the, the header, the door frame of the house where they will eat them. Okay, so here's how they're supposed to celebrate uh, their New Year's Day. Very weird uh, instructions here. A lot of blood going on uh, um, uh, for New Year's Day. And then he skips down and says, okay, why? Why this weird meal? What's about to happen? Skip down to verse 12. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the people, uh, both the people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right, so uh, he tells him, take this animal, and at at the same time, every household in all of Egypt is going to kill an animal at the same time. And why? Because the tenth and the final plague is coming. Uh, The tenth and the final plague is coming. And um, there's a lot that sets this plague out as unique from all the rest, uh, from, from all the rest of the, the previous ones. We, um, firstly, the first thing I wanna, uh, want us to notice is that um, both Egypt and Israel here stood under the threat of this plague. So, if you, uh, so both, both, both Israel and Egypt uh, um, stood under the threat. So remember last week that, uh, that God, God distinguished when, when for all the other nine plagues, uh, God distinguished uh, very clearly between Israel and Egypt. He sent flies, we're told, only to the houses of the Egyptians. He killed only the Egyptian livestock. Only the Egyptians got boils. Only uh, the, uh, the region where the Israelites lived, we're told, it, it explicitly tells us they didn't get any hail, they didn't get any locusts, they didn't even get any darkness. Uh, so God knew who his people were. He knew how to tell the difference between the Egyptian houses and the Israelite houses. He knew the boundaries of their region within Egypt. But in none of the, what's weird, what makes this unique is that in none of the other plagues does God require any kind of marker. He uses that language. He says, this blood, the blood that you're going to spread on the doorpost, that's going to be a distinguishing marker so I may know you. So, uh, so but presumably, we've already seen God can tell the difference. Like, he knows who his people are and who's not. So why the blood? Why the dead lamb? Why, uh, why a marker? Well, God was doing something very unique and very climactic with this final last plague. The blood of, his, of this firstborn animal, here's the short of it, the blood of, of, of the firstborn animal, it was satisfying God's just wrath against those who rejected him. The, the blood was important because it satisfied the just wrath of those who had rejected him. And, and here's what I mean. So go all the way back to the first chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, what is Israel or what is Pharaoh's first crime against God and his people? His first crime is he sets out on this plan that ultimately gets foiled by some midwives, but he sets out on a plan to kill all the baby boys, all the male children that are born to, uh, to, uh, to, to Israel. And uh, so he's, uh, and then, and then, um, Skipping ahead to chapter 4, uh, at, the end of, at the end of chapter 4, this is what uh, God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh. He says, and you, Moses, will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. I told, I told you, let my son go so that he may worship you, me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, then, I am about to kill your firstborn son. So, uh, so in other words... God has already told Pharaoh that because he had enslaved and impressed and murdered God's precious child, and, and particularly he was targeting the, 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 the firstborn sons of, of Israel, uh, God would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. So in God's just wrath, this was the, the tenth and final plague, was the, was the judgment for the king's hard, stubborn, and idolatrous heart. Okay, so then we might ask then, if we're following along, uh, um, if the death of a firstborn is the righteous judgment against Pharaoh because Pharaoh rejected God, we all see that Pharaoh rejected God, then why do the people of Israel need a substitute? 
Uh, why, why do the people of Israel need to, be, uh, need to paint the blood over their doorplace? And, and the answer to that is that the people of Israel themselves, not just Pharaoh, stand guilty before God. So in, in chapter 4, right after these, these words are spoken, uh, Moses goes to, goes to Israel and he tells them that, he's gonna, that God's going to deliver him, them. And it's, uh, they love that idea. They love the idea of being delivered. And it says they believed and they worshipped. Right? That's what happens at the end of chapter 4. And then, but then, in the next two chapters, as soon as start, things start to get challenging, twice, it's repeated twice, we're told that, um, that, that uh, as soon as it got, got challenging, they turned on Moses. So they criticized him. They said, may the Lord take note of you and judge you. So they, they, they're calling on God's judgment upon, upon him now. So things turn very quickly. And then, later, uh, 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 and then later in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Moses told this to the Israelites. But they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and their hard labor. So twice we're told of Israel's hard, unbelieving heart. They were just as guilty as Pharaoh. And, and this is a thing that we're going to see really play out. Uh, we get in, inklings of it now with these two rejections. But it's, it's, a, it's a thing that we're going to see play out if you know the story of Exodus over really the story of the, of the, of the whole Old Testament. is over and over and over again in Exodus and their existence as a nation. Israel's heart was hard toward God and therefore deserved his righteous wrath. And what this does is this makes God's provision, God provided in the midst of their hard-hearted Pharaoh-like rebellion and rejection of him, God provides a lamb for his people, a firstborn animal of the flock. Uh, And only the death of the innocent in place of the guilty could turn away God's wrath and provide the rescue that he, he promised. And the, the Bible theology word for this is propitiation, which, which is just, it means a, a sacrifice that turns away God's anger. A, a sacrifice that turns away God's anger. And in the, in the first Passover, here in Exodus 12, uh, when the Lord moved through the land of, of Egypt, the, the blood of the animal spread on the doorpost, marked out God's people, stood in the place of the firstborn in every home, and turned away, in, a, in almost a, like a literal picture of a sense, turned away God's wrath as, as the Lord passed over, that's where we get the word pass, Passover, the, Lord, the Lord's judgment passed over the people of Israel uh, because of the blood that was on their door. And his people were spared as a result of the propitiation, the sacrifice that they had made to turn away uh, the wrath of God. And this image, the healthy, spotless, firstborn lamb whose blood was shed in the place of God's hard-hearted people which turned away his wrath this that image is at the very core of the gospel of Jesus we find out in all of the gospels the the, uh, gospel the the New Testament is very explicit in this we find out in all the gospels that Jesus went to Jerusalem and on the night of his uh, the the final night of his life he celebrated a Passover meal he took he he celebrated this same meal that we see instituted here in in, in Exodus chapter 12 we're going to talk a little bit about what that meal uh, looked like a little later. Uh, so, uh, so leading up to his death, he's celebrating this meal where this animal is killed, satisfying the wrath of God. And then Jesus, God's firstborn son, went to the cross. And in John's gospel, we find out that both the thieves on either side of Jesus, they've had their legs broken uh, after, after they had been, been crucified. But Jesus not a, bo- a bone on his body was broken, just like the lambs who were to be unblemished, never, uh, nothing ever broken. And then we're told that he was killed at the very same hour, the same time of day, same hour as that the Passover sacrifices 
were being slaughtered in Jerusalem in the temple just across town. Uh, and that is why in Paul, in Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 can call Jesus our Passover Lamb, the one who stands in our place, who lived the life that we could never live and then died the death we deserved to die, uh, um, to turn away God's wrath. And here's the beauty of the gospel that God invites us this morning to embrace. That he is a holy, that he is a just, that he is a loving creator, but that you and I are hard-hearted sinners who stand guilty before him and rightfully deserve the consequences for our rebellion, uh, which is death. But in his lavish kindness, he has provided a substitute, someone to take our place, the righteous killed for the unrighteous, the holy slain for the sinner, the faithful one condemned while the faithless are accepted. And in taking the place of his people, all of God's wrath has been eternally and definitively turned away from you and me. All of God's wrath in Jesus, all of God's anger has been turned away eternally and definitively from you in Jesus. And instead, God's wrath has been poured out into and onto Jesus the Lamb. But it doesn't end there. Remember, uh, uh, because um, it's not just that, uh, it's not only that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath. It's not only that uh, it turns away God's wrath. Uh, Jesus' death secures our redemption through substitution, or, or secures our adoption through substitution. I get, I'm getting my shuns, my Bible shun words confused. Um, through through um, substitution. So the end result then is not just that God now calls us innocent, or uh, but that He calls us sons and daughters. So look, look uh, remember, uh, and this is this is God's heart for Israel, uh, all the way back in in, in, in chapter four. We saw when. When he calls Israel his firstborn son. So the whole point of this whole project of getting these people out of, out of slavery was not just to save some random, you know, uh, random nation. He wasn't just like, man, they look like they're really having a hard time. I should do, like, throw them a bone and be nice to them. No, the whole point of the Exodus is to purchase back for himself a son, a child in whom he delights uh, has a, and has a special father-like affection for. And so, uh, and, and we see this thing picked up in the New Testament as well. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, he says, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were in slavery, just like Israel in Egypt, under the elements of this world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So do you see that? Uh, The the, the New Testament picks up on the same language as, as the Old Testament. Outside of Christ, we are slaves, oppressed by our slave masters in Egypt. But through Christ, we have been ushered in as sons and daughters. The, the language there in the, New, in, in the Bible is, is that of sons because in that culture, like there was a unique thing about adopting, like uh, that, that firstborn sons receive the full rights and inheritance. But, so, but we can understand this. And this applies to both the men and women in the body, in the body of Christ are as equally uh, in, in inheriting uh, the, the, the rights and, af- and affection of, of adoption. So um, 
so, uh, and, and, and if we are his children, then we are his heirs and rightfully inherit all the rights, all the privileges, all the affection and approval that a father lavishes on his children. Through substitution, through the one who took our place, we receive adoption. And so often this can get neglected in, your, in our hearts. I know it gets neglected in my dull, numb heart uh, often. If we've heard the gospel, we've trusted it in, in him, we, we know that we have forgiveness of sins in Jesus. We've heard that even if you've never even been to church, you've probably heard that, that forgiveness of sins is in Jesus. But we have a diminished and a puny way of viewing this forgiveness. We think of God as kind of after forgiving us of our sins, after saying, okay, yeah, you're good, me and you are good, I, I look, I, uh, uh, Jesus pay, paid the penalty for your sin, um, but now we think of God as like looking over our shoulders, saying, okay, I've forgiven you. Now it's up to you to, to, ma- uh, to make the most of, what I, the, of the opportunity that I've given you. Now it's up to you to, to, to prove that I was right and that, that I was right to forgive you. Uh, um, the, the, the problem is, though, we don't make the most of it. And we can't, uh, we can't uh, justify God's forgiveness. We fail, we stumble, we sin in grievous ways, even as... Believers, And in our mind's eye, we can almost hear God say, I don't know if you've, or you've heard this voice in your head, like uh, of, of, uh, this imposter voice of God saying, like, you blew it again? Again? Like, at some point, when are you going to get your act together? One of these times is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, and I just know it in the back of my mind that, that when I fail again, God's going to drop the hammer at some point, right? Like, he's forgiven me, yeah, but he's still like, almost regretfully so, like uh, that, that, that he's forgiven me. Um, but the gospel is not that. The gospel is not that God has given you a clean slate and now, 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 you, now we get to, to prove him right. The gospel is that in addition to the clean slate, Christ has secured adoption so that now all the wrath, all the disappointment, all the judgment has been stripped totally clean and in, his, in, in all of that place, he looks on you not as innocent, but as his child with full delight. As a father, the psalmist says, Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion on his child, so the Lord has compassion on you. As a good father delights and has affection and, and approval for his children, so the Lord looks on you with affection and delight. And that's the grace that he calls us to take him up on today. Okay, so... Um, so, God's rescue secures our adoption through substitution, but then secondly, God's rescue decisively defeats our enemies. God's rescue decisively defeats our enemies. Uh, in the story of the Passover, we see that God uh, uh, defeats his, his people's enemies. For God uh, first told Moses that he would rescue his people from slavery all the way back in chapter 3. Uh, so, that, that was nine, eight or nine chapters ago, depending on how you count. Uh, so, for the past eight chapters, we've known this was coming. But it's been kind of a slow burn, as Danny described it a couple weeks ago. We, see, we saw God draw Pharaoh out and entice him, egg him on into this duel that he know, knew he would win. And then Justin compared it to like an NBA playoff series, like a 10-game series where God, is, God wins every single round. Uh, and and w- what we see, though, is that through this prolonged um, uh, uh, series, after nine plagues, a lot of arguing between Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh has changed his mind, and then Pharaoh has changed his mind back. Israel is still enslaved. Pharaoh's heart is uh, not changed. In fact, it's even harder. 
And what, but what we, uh, and, and so now in God and, and, and Pharaoh are, are squaring off here in Exodus chapter 12 for the 10th and final game of the series. And what we see is that God's victory is decisive. He leaves no doubt. He is like a, 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 like a master chess player. Kind of, have you ever played chess against somebody that's like 20 times better than you? I, every time I play chess, that's how it is. But uh, uh, like you, you just know, like I remember like, I don't know, there's just arrogant people that I've played against chess with anyways. Uh, like, and you just know from like the very first move of your pawn, like I'm, I lost. Like, like just though they're, they're, the way they play, they, they have it all mapped out. They know every move you're going to make before you make it. And then by the end of it, they just elegantly slide their queen piece across and they have like all of their pieces left and your horse or whatever it's called is laying over. And, and they just knock your, your king off like, okay, next, next person, right? Like that's, God, that's the image of God masterfully winning this game of chess against Pharaoh. It's, it's uh, you know, maybe I could play that way against my two-year-old son or something like that. Like, um, uh, that's, that's, that's the image. And, and, um, and, and the details of the story really kind of bring this decisive, unquestioning uh, victory out. So, uh, uh, so let's go back to, to chapter 12. We remember that the, the, the animal that they were supposed to kill, they were actually supposed to do two things with that. They were supposed to spread the blood on the doors, but they were also supposed to eat it. Remember, uh, they're supposed to eat you know, just a mu- enough for their family or whatever, however much they could eat for their family or, or maybe two ha- households that come together. So they're supposed to eat this meal. Uh, and, and this is, this is, so he describes exactly how they're supposed to eat this meal in, in verses 8 through 11. So he says, they are to eat the meal that night, that is the 14th night of the, mo- of the first month. They should eat it roasted over a fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So this is basically what he's trying to picture is like a camping trip, right? Uh, uh, so you eat it over a roasted fire. And there's unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is very significant because it doesn't take time to rise. There's no yeast in it, so it doesn't, you don't need time to rise. It's, very, it's a quick, it's a pilgrim's meal. Uh, that's actually the blank. If you're falling off, because blanks, I probably missed all of them uh, so in your bulletins. But it's a pilgrim's meal that they're, that they're eating together with, with bitter herbs. Uh, uh, this is a traveler's meal. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only over a roasted fire. It's supposed to be like you're on the move. Uh, it's head with all its legs and its inner organs. Yummy. Uh, you must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, mu- you must burn. So because they're moving, uh, there's not going to be any leftovers. There's no time to keep the leftovers with you. You're moving. It's going to be a quick and decisive thing that I'm going to do. So the, your last meal uh, in slavery is going to be very quick because God's rescue is coming and it's coming very fast. Here's how m- you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So there's a few times... Uh, when I commercial fished uh, uh, in high school and, and college uh, over the summer, uh, a few every once in a while you have a long day where you're just like out on deck eating, or I mean not eating, you're out on deck uh, picking nets and stuff, and and you just have to work for a long, long time, or or you have to race the tide or something, so you don't get a chance to fit in a meal. And so, but me, I was 17 year old boy, like they don't skip meals, so uh, I would quick run a, a, into the cabin as fast as I could and like scarf down a sandwich as fast as I could, and then come back out and, and keep working. Uh, this is how I was told, I was informed, this is how f- uh, firefighters eat ev- all their meals. Uh, just by training, they scarf their food down as, as quickly as possible. That's the kind of meal that Israel was supposed to celebrate on this last night of, of, of slavery. So, uh, and the whole point of this is that it's happening very fast, that God's victory is decisive. It will, it's going to, you got, so you've got to be ready for it because it's, uh, it's been a slow burn, but, it's gonna, but the candle's going to burn out very quickly uh, at the end. So, um, so, but it doesn't end with the meal, so skip down to verse 29. 
Uh, he says, now at midnight, and, th- and this is where it gets intense. The, and now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the uh, firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, uh, Pharaoh got up, he along with his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt be- uh, because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you have asked and leave, and also bless me. And then keep going in verse 33. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people uh, took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped in, up in their cloth, cloths uh, on their shoulders. Uh, the, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, Israel, this puny slave nation, plundered the Egyptians, the greatest empire uh, on the face of the earth. So, uh, suddenly the weight of this moment is felt with heaviness like never before. Potentially thousands of boys along with animals are left dead. God has handed Pharaoh over to the death-producing desires of his heart. And at least for now, God has brought the king to his breaking point, to rock bottom. We'll see actually next week that he doesn't stay there for very long. But he's at rock bottom. And so Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night. He's so broken, he can't wait till morning. It's got to happen now. And he doesn't just allow Israel to leave. It's not like begrudgingly letting them go. He commands them to leave. That's how sovereignly God has bent in, uh, Pharaoh, this, uh, this hard-hearted, his hard-hearted enemy, has bent his will toward to align it with his own uh, in, in, this, in, in, in this battle, in this chess match. And not just Pharaoh, but all of Egypt plead for, or begging for them to leave. And uh, they, not, they did not leave in defeat, but in, in total victory. So it, uh, in, in chapter 13, when, or later in this chapter, when, there's, when he's describing it, it says that they're leaving in battle formation. So they're confidently marching out of Egypt uh, under no threat, uh, moving quickly because God acted very quickly. So God's victory for Israel was, rescue was, uh, was decisive. And we said earlier, just like, just like the lamb's blood, God's decisive rec- rescue here is actually a picture of the gospel. It's, it's an image for how he rescues us through Jesus, his people. Listen to Paul's summary of the gospel in, in Colossians chapter 2. He says this, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to uh, the cross. So uh, that's through the... Sat- God's wrath has been satisfied through, his, through the cross. And then... Verse 15 is the kicker. He disarmed in doing that in the cross. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, In other words, outside of Christ, you and I are bound and enslaved, grinding 
and, and, and suffering under, uh, under sin. Paul, Paul goes to great lengths to, to say that we are slaves just like we are slaves and we are dead, just like Egypt was a slave and, and dead outside of, outside of Jesus. Yet here's the beauty of the Exodus. That in Christ, my freedom has been secured decisively. Like Pharaoh sobbing helplessly in the night, our slaveholders have been publicly humiliated. Sin, whether it's porn or anger, alcohol, an obsession with financial security, the, the approval of others, the spiritual forces at work, to, uh, at work against God and, and us, they have no claim. The sin that has caused you and the sin that has caused the people around you so much pain and so much misery has been defeated and destroyed. Publicly disgraced, triumphed over. Now, as soon as I say that, I have to ask myself a lot of other questions. Like, if that's true, if, if, the, if the slave master of my sin, all the enemies uh, against me, has been completely vanquished, then why is it that I still act like a slave? Like, why do I still give... If God's rescue was that decisive, why do I still act like I'm still in captivity? Can it be really true that God has decisively saved me from my sin? Or is that just wishful thinking? The answer is no. The utter success of Christ is not just wishful thinking. And yes, our sin has been totally defeated. And this is true in two important senses that, I, that my heart needs to get around. Uh, firstly, though at, though at times we may go back to living as slaves, our sin no longer defines us. So because Jesus did what you could never do, your status before God will never Change As Paul says, the record of debt is canceled. Though it's valid, it's canceled against you. Uh, it's been erased. And though, my, uh, though we still may sin, though we still may play the part of a, of a slave, of, of a captive, going back uh, to, to, to the sins that, that defined us in the past, our sin no longer defines us. But then second, if you are in Christ, this is important for us to, to grasp as well. If we are in Christ, our ultimate, our final, and our complete freedom from slavery has already been secured. So when Christ returns and your dead body is raised to life in His eternal kingdom, our perfection will be fully, decisively, and completely accomplished. You will never fail. You will never fall. You will never stumble again. You will never hurt again. And it will be so good. Christ has rescued us from the, the slavery of our sin and our enemies decisively. So we rest in what He has done for us. Okay, God's rescue secures our adoption through substitution. And God's rescue decisively defeats our enemies. But then finally, thirdly, God's rescue requires rehearsal. God's rescue re requires rehearsal. I was uh, struck in reading this passage over and over again in preparation for this. Uh, Moses takes 78 verses to describe, uh, to describe the events here of the, of the last plague and the Passover. 78 verses. 31 of those, it's 40%. 40% of, of all the content of this, of this section is, is, him giving, or is God giving them instructions for how they're to remember this night in the future. 
Okay, so only 60% of it is actually describing what happened. 40% of it is telling them what, how to remember this in, in the future. Uh, and, uh, and here's how it would work. Here's the instruction. We're not going to read all those instructions, uh, uh, although they occur a lot in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, here's how, in the future, when the people were in the land, or even before them, when they were wandering through the wilderness, and when they were in the land, everyone would travel to the temple in Jerusalem, uh, or, or, or the tabernacle before the temple was built. And on the 14th, 14th night of the first month, just like, uh, just like uh, his instructions in chapter 12 are, they would, uh, they would sacrifice, each, each family would bring a, a, a sacrifice, a, a, a goat or a, or a lamb, a, fir, uh, a year old goat or, or, or sheep, into the temple. They'd sacrifice it. And then they'd take that uh, lamb back to their homes, they, and they'd, or not their homes, but either their homes or wherever they were staying uh, while they were in Jerusalem. And they would, um, they would eat the, the meat of, that, of that, uh, that animal and with unleavened bread, with just like the, the, first, uh, the first generation of the Exodus. And then following that day, uh, the, the, the day following the 14th, so on the 15th, they would start uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, which, were, which lasted for six days. And you, they only ate, they ate nothing with yeast in it, so it was all unleavened bread. So what a, what a, what a feast, just a bunch of crackers. So. And then on the, on the seventh day... There was, they would rest. They would, they, would, uh, they, would, uh, they would rest from all their, all their work. So it, was a, it, it turned it into a whole week-long thing. There, were, there was a sacrifice, the meal, and then a seven-day feast of unleavened bread immediately following that. And these instructions actually get repeated. They, they, he spends a lot of time, 31 verses here, describing them. And then again, he recounts them again in the, uh, in, in the second half of Exodus. And then he counts them again in Leviticus and again in Deuteronomy. So four times in the, old, in the, old, in the first five books of the, of, of the Old Testament. That's why, that's why Leviticus is so hard to get through in the Old Testament. There are lots of repetition. But, um, but the point is that God makes a big deal about the importance of rehearsing his rescue. God wants this event drilled into his people. So at every point they remember who they are and what he had done for them. So... When they are tempted to make alliances in the, in the future of this nation, when they are tempted to make alliances with other nations and compromise themselves, when they are tempted to complain and grumble about God, when they are tempted to worship false gods, when they are tempted to uh, oppress the vulnerable uh, in their nation, they were to remember that they too once were oppressed. They too once were slaves in a pagan nation deserving God's judgment. But God had decisively rescued them through a substitute. And so they were to commemorate this with this, with this feast and festival because God's rescue requires rehearsal, requires us to rehearse it. And friends, not much has changed for us today. We are called to rehearse God's rescue. And Jesus himself tells us to do this. And there's three avenues that I want us to, that I want us to camp out on. Uh, um, three avenues for rehearsal, for rehearsing the gospel. Uh, uh, um, of, of, for rehearsing God's rescue in our lives. Uh, the first is that we, are, we must participate with Jesus in his new Passover meal. We are called to, we rehearse God's rescue by participating with Jesus in his new Passover meal. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed, the final night of his life, he gathered in an upper room with his closest followers and celebrated a Passover meal. But uh, it's just like was introduced, just like they were commanded to in Exodus chapter 12. But this Passover meal was n- like no other Passover before it. No longer was this an old covenant meal, primarily looking back to Egypt. Instead, Jesus' meal and the meal he commands us to, to take uh, 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 as his people, the Lord's Supper, Jesus' meal, 
uh, is about victory, the victory that God achieved in the person of Jesus. And so in this, in Jesus' new meal, there's still unleavened bread. Uh, but in addition to being about looking back to the hurried escape from Egypt, the unleavened bread is broken. He breaks it and hands it out because it's a symbol of his body, uh, his flesh that was broken for us. Um, and, and in addition to the unleavened bread, there's also blood, just like there was in the first Passover. The, the blood it isn't, though, the blood of a, a lamb or a goat that needs to be offered over and over again. Uh, the blood of Jesus' meal was shed on the cross. And in the cup of wine, in this cup of wine that we, that we take, uh, uh, we, uh, we sip into ourselves His death. So the blood of Jesus' meal, uh, we claim for ourselves, we are marked by the blood. We get our life because His lifeblood was poured out for us. And so we participate with Him in His death. We take His broken body and His poured out blood into ourselves. And the Bible word for this uh, is communion. And, but the, the communion, that's where, if you've ever heard the Lord's Supper the, 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 uh, referred to as communion, it comes from this, uh, the, the, this plain, simple English word is to participate with. So in Jesus' new meal, we reenact and we rehearse our oneness with Him that has come about only because He died our death. And now with everything that we have within us, we want to be as close to His death uh, in our place. So we celebrate our mink, intermingled, united life with Jesus, our Messiah. Now, as Christians, we have a lot of baggage that gets attached to this meal, and some of it's unhelpful. So maybe you've had questions about or, or hang-ups with the, Lord, with the Lord's Supper. Uh, but at its heart, when we celebrate it as a family and we take it as a sign and a symbol of our union, of our oneness, our participation with Jesus. And that's a, a, that is, it's a unique and a powerful way. So when we celebrate it this Friday uh, in our Good, Good Friday uh, gathering, like it's a unique and a powerful way that we teach ourselves that we are bound up with the sacrifice of Christ who was our propitiation. So much so that even on our worst days, when we carry the guilt of dark, Sinfulness. When the Father looks at you, He does not see you. He sees the righteous, pure perfection of Jesus, your substitute. And so we take this meal hungry and desperate, rehearsing God's rescue and His grace. Okay, so we participate with Jesus, but we secondly, we pass it down. We rehearse God's rescue by passing it down. Look at chapter 12, verse 26. He says, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. And then in chapter 13, verse 14, he says, in the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When the Lord stubbornly, or when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So, we have, Jesus, or in, in this description of how they're supposed to celebrate this, God, God knows this is a weird thing that I'm asking you to do. This is a weird meal that, that, you're, that you're taking. You're supposed to pretend like you're camping. You're supposed to, uh, uh, supposed to pretend like you're on the run. You're supposed to put blood everywhere. What, what's the deal? He knows that, our, that their kids are going to ask questions. Why are we doing such weird stuff? Uh, 
But it's as if God is intentionally creating and orchestrating these moments in the life of His people's rhythm in, in, in His people's rhythms in life when they are to have uh, intentional conversations about the God's rescue from from Exodus. And the same thing is true for us. We are, we're called to intentionally, parents particularly, we're called to intentionally create opportunities in our family's rhythms and schedules to explain and rehearse God's grace to our kids. Right? Moses, God and Moses just assume that's what's, that's what's happening. And he gives us the exact words to say. In, in these, like, uh, he gives us the exact words to say. So this is why we love to have our elementary age kids as often as we can when we take the Lord's Supper together. We love to have our elementary age kids in here with us. Knowing that probably many of them are not going to take the Lord's Supper with us, but hopefully my prayer is that it would spark a lot of questions uh, in, in your kids' lives uh, that, that they would ask you about. And that you have a script here that you, that you can read off of to, to answer the, the questions that they, that they bring. Uh, but beyond this, we, we, make, we can make opportunities, family discipleship times, over the dinner table or bedtime or whatever, when we can open up the Bible and talk about a passage, what a passage teaches us about God and the gospel. And you say, man, I can't do that. I, I don't know how to have that uh, conversation like, about the Bible with my kids. They, uh, uh, and and um, I don't know how to have those conversations. Well, maybe, maybe the, the onus is on you to, to invest the time and energy into reading a good book. Or to watching some Bible project videos, or, or being, or committing to be in the Word on on your own uh, by yourself, or just finding another mom or dad and just asking, "Hey, show me how you have these kind of conversations and disciple uh, with your kids." Think of how many hours a week you devote to making sure your kids have a good education, to making sure they turn in their homework on time, to making sure they get to practice, to making sure they get to all their all their other extracurricular activities. Like the gospel can't take a back seat to those things for the sake of your kids' joy, for the sake of your, your kids thriving. And, it's, and, and the implication is that it's on us parents to, to create and to be intentional uh, with, with moments in, we, in which we can rehearse for our kids um, uh, the, the beauty of God's rescue. So, um, uh, so, we participate with Jesus, we pass it down to our kids, and then finally... We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. So, and by this I mean uh, the, uh, rem- r- uh, God's decisive rescue through his substitute. Like it was to be a defining feature of their lives. Uh, and, and for us, like, that means we don't, we don't have to relegate it to a yearly feast or festival that we celebrate. We're not going to have to relegate it to uh, a once a month celebration of the Lord's uh, Supper. Uh, uh, or even just once a week when we hear a sermon, we can taste and feel and know the gospel in every nook and cranny of our life. So this afternoon, when temptation rears its head, we don't have to give in to the temptation. We can say, I don't need that drink, or I don't need that affirmation from others that this lie would get. I don't need porn to find my happiness or comfort or satisfaction. Jesus' death in my place has given me all the fake pleasure, all the fake, uh, all, all the pleasure, all the, all the um, comfort, all the satisfaction that those fakes uh, claim to offer. We rehearse God's rescue over ourselves as sufficient in the face of temptation. But we also, 
Uh, when loneliness or anxiety grip us, when our souls are overshadowed by darkness that's sometimes paralyzing, we cast our mind, we rehearse God's rescue, we cast our mind to the Jesus who was lonely and anxious for your sake, for our sake, to the point of death on a cross. And now, through His death, we are bound to Him so much so that nothing can separate us, as Romans says, uh, nothing can separate us from our love. So we soak our souls against all odds in our Savior's presence with us. What, what do we do? We rehearse God's rescue to ourselves. We preach the gospel to ourselves. And then when guilt and shame threaten to undo you because of the mistakes that you've made, we look to Christ who paid the debt, who absorbed the shame, who bore the condemnation and became sin for you so that you might become the perfect righteousness of Christ. So we take rest that we have been justified out of sheer and unmerited grace. God's rescue requires us, invites us, compels us, woos us to rehearse it over and over in our souls, in our families, and, and, uh, and, and in our family life together. So let's move in, deep into that gospel story together. We're going to continue to sing that gospel story as a church family now. So let me pray for us. Father, we praise you because your rescue from slavery has been decisive. We confess uh, our hearts are often so slow to believe, so, so, so slow to, 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 to reckon that true of us. We confess that our hearts are often numb to the, to the, to the sovereign power of your grace. Our hearts are often numb to the immense beauty that we have been adopted, those slaves, those dead, those running rebels against your will, we have been brought in and welcomed as sons and daughters and therefore receive all the rights and the privileges and the affection, the approval and the delight of our, of our Father. Our hearts are slow to believe this gospel. So Lord, would you soften, would you change? Teach us, uh, even as we go, go from here, ways that we can rehearse your rescue over our own souls, over the souls of our families, over the souls of the, our brothers and sisters in this, uh, in this body. Would you uh, win us by your grace? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.